Chapter 6, Part 2 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922, by various authors. The Highest Point, by George Mallory, Part 2. As the broken ledges we now followed presented no special difficulties, the party was able to explore more than one level in search of some place sufficiently flat and sufficiently commodious. The nature of the ground and the presence of cloud, though we were never thickly enveloped, prevented any sort of extensive view. Many suggestions were mooted and rejected. A considerable time elapsed, and still we had found no site that would serve. At about 2 p.m., Somerville and some porters shouted the news that one tent could be pitched in the place where they were. On the far side of a defined rib, slanting up to the ridge we had left, they had discovered some sort of platform. It was evident that work would be required to extend and prepare it for the tent, and they at once set about building a supporting wall and leveling the ground. It remained to find a place near at hand for the other tent. We could see no obvious shelf, but the constructional works undertaken by Somerville seemed to contain such a promising idea that Norton and I, in separate places, each started works of our own. Each of us very soon reached the same conclusion, that nothing could be done where he was. We moved away and tried again, but always with the same result. The ground was everywhere too steep and too insecure. One soon tires of heaving up big stones when no useful end is served. Eventually coming together, we resolved to agree on the least unlikely sites and make the best of it. We chose the foot of a long sloping slab. At all events, it was part of the mountain and would not budge, and there built up the ground below it with some fine stones we found to hand. Our tent was pitched at last with one side of the floor lying along the foot of the sloping slab, and the other half on the platform we had made. It was not a situation that promised for either of us a bountiful repose, for one would be obliged to lie along the slope, and the only check to his tendency to slip down would be the body of the other. However, there it was, a little tent making a gallant effort to hold itself proudly and well. Before we had concluded these operations, the porters had been sent down about 3 p.m., and kitchen had been instituted, and a meal was already being prepared, presumably because their single tent would have to accommodate the four of us, ours was too far away, when we set ourselves down to eat and be warm, Somerville and Morsha had arranged the kitchen outside of it. Somerville had appointed himself chief in this department, and it remained only for the rest of us to offer menial service, but so great had been his energy and perseverance sheltering the flame from the cold drought, and by every device encouraging the snow to melt, that almost all such offers were rejected. Like a famous pretender, I would have gladly been a scullion, but I was allowed only to open one or two tins and fill up a pot with snow. I have no recollection of what we ate. I remember only a hot and stimulating drink, brand's essence or bovril or something of the sort. We did not linger long over this meal. We wanted to go to bed still warm. Norton and I soon left the others in possession of their tent, 
and began to make our dispositions for the night. To the civilized man who gets into bed after the customary routine, tucks himself in, lays his bed on the pillow, and presently goes to sleep with no further worry, the dispositions in a climber's tent may seem to be strangely intricate. In the first place, he has to arrange about his boots. He looks forward to the time when he will have to start next morning, if possible, with warm feet and in boots not altogether frozen stiff. He may choose to go to bed in his boots, not altogether approving the practice, and resolving that the habit shall not be allowed to grow upon him. If his feet are already warm when he turns in, it may be that he can do no better. His feet will probably keep warm in the sleeping bag if he wears his bed socks over his boots, and he will not have to endure the pains of pulling on and wearing frozen boots in the morning. At this camp, I adopt a different plan to wear moccasins instead of boots during the night and keep them on until the last minute before starting. But if one takes his boots off, where is he to keep them warm? Climbing boots are not good to cuddle, and in any case there will be no room for them with two now inside a double sleeping bag. My boots were happily accommodated in a rucksack and I put them under my head for a pillow. It is not often that one uses the head for warming things, and no one would suspect one of a hot head. Nevertheless, my boots were kept warm enough and were scarcely frozen in the morning. It was all important besides to make ourselves really comfortable if we were to get to sleep by making experiments in the disposition of limbs, adjusting the floor if possible, and arranging one's pillow at exactly the right level, which may be difficult as the pillow should be high if one is to breathe easily at a great altitude. I had already found out exactly how to be comfortable before Norton was ready to share the accommodation. I remarked that in our double sleeping bag, I found ample room for myself, but not much to spare. Norton's entrance was a grievous disturbance. It was doubtful for some time whether he would be able to enter, considering how long and slim he is. It is astonishing how much room he requires. We were so tightly pressed together that if either was to move, a corresponding maneuver was required of the other. I soon discovered, as the chief item of interest in the place where I lay, a certain boulder, obstinately immovable and excruciatingly sharp, which came up between my shoulder blades. How under these circumstances we achieved sleep, and I believe that both of us were sometimes unconscious in a sort of light, intermittent slumber. I cannot attempt to explain. Perhaps the fact that one was often breathless from the exhaustion of discomfort and was obliged to breathe deeply helped one to sleep, as deep breathing often will. Perhaps the necessity of lying still because it was so difficult to move was good for us in the end. Norton's case was worse than mine. One of his ears had been severely frostbitten on the way up. Only one side was available to lie on, and yet, the blessed sleep we sometimes sigh for in easy beds at home visited him too. The party had suffered more than at first we realized from exposure in the wind on the way up. The damage to Norton's ear was not all. I noticed when my hands got warm in bed that three fingertips appeared to be badly bruised. The symptom could only point to one conclusion, and I soon made out how they had come to be frostbitten. At the time when the step-cutting began, 
I had been wearing a pair of lined leather gloves, motor driver's gloves well suited to the occasion, and my hands had been so warm that I thought it safe to change the glove on my right hand for a woolen one with which it was easier to grasp the axe. But wool is not a good protection against wind, and in grasping the axe, I must have partially stopped the circulation in those fingertips. The injury, though not serious, was inconvenient, and Morshed had felt the cold far more than I. It is still uncertain whether he had yet been frostbitten in toes and fingers, but though he made no complaints about them until much later, I have little doubt they were already touched, if not severely frozen. At all events, he had been badly chilled on the way up. He was obliged to lie down when we reached our camp and was evidently unwell. When all is said about our troubles and difficulties, the night, in spite of everything, was endurable, for distraction to pass the sleepless intervals engaging thoughts were not far to seek. We had still our plans for tomorrow, the climax was to come, and might we not get so high by such a time? Then might not the remaining hours be almost even quite enough? Besides, we had accomplished something, and though the moments of falling achievements are occupied more often in looking forward than in looking back, we perhaps deliberately encourage in ourselves a certain complacency on the present occasion we were able to feel some little satisfaction in the mere existence of this camp. The two small tents perched there on the vast mountainside of snowbound rocks and was actually higher at 25,000 feet than any climbing party had been before. Hang it all, we cooed. It's not so bad. The worst of it, in dimly conscious movements, was still the weather. The wind had dropped in the evening, as it often does, and nothing was to be deduced from that, but the hovering clouds had not cleared off and the night was too warm. I'm not meaning that we complained of the warmth, but for fine weather, we must have a cold night, and it was no colder here than we had often known it at Camp 3. Occasionally, stars were visible during the night, but they shone with a feeble, watery light, and in the early morning we were listening to the musical patter of fine, granular snow on the roofs of our tents. A thick mist had come up all about us, and the stones outside were white with a growing pall of fresh snow. We were greatly surprised under these conditions when, at about 6.30 a.m., a perceptible break appeared in the clouds of, to the east of us, the weather quarter, and this good sign developed so hopefully that we were soon encouraged to expect a fair day. It was even more surprising, perhaps, that someone among us very quickly discovered his conscience. I suppose, he said with a stifled yawn, in a tone that reminded one of Mr. Saltina rolling around in his costly bed. It's about time we were getting up. No one dissented. How could one dissent? I suppose we ought to be getting up we grunted in return, and slowly we began to draw ourselves out from the tight warmth of those friendly bags. I do not propose to emphasize the various agonies of an early morning start or to catalogue all that may be found for fumbling fingers to do so, but one incident is worth recording. A second rucksack escaped us, slipping from the ledge where it was perched and went bounding down the mountain. Its value, even Norton would agree, was greater than that of the first. 
It contained our provisions. Our breakfast was inside it. From the moment of its illusion, I gave it up for lost. What could stop its fatal career? What did it stop it, unless it were a miracle? Somehow or another, it was hung up on a ledge 100 feet below. Moore should volunteer to go and get it. By slow degrees, he dragged up the heavy load, and our precious stones were recovered intact. At 8 a.m., we were ready to start and roped up, Norton first, followed by myself, Morshed, and Somerville. This bald statement of fact may suggest a misleading picture. The reader may imagine the four of us like runners at the start of a race, greyhounds straining at the leash, with nerves on the stretch and muscles aching for the moment when they can be suddenly tight and strong endeavor. It was not like that. I suppose we all had the same feelings in various degrees, and even our slight exertions about the camp had shown us something of our physical state. In spite of the occasional sleep of exhaustion, it had been a long, restless night, scarcely less wearisome than the preceding day. We were tired no less than when we went to bed, and stiff from lying in cramped attitudes. I was clear about my own case. Struggling across with an awkward load from one tent to another, I had been forced to put the question, is it possible for me to go on? Judging from physical evidence, no. I hadn't the power to lift my weight repeatedly step after step, and yet from experience I know that I should go on for a time at all events, something would set the machinery going and somehow I should be able to keep it at work. And when the moment of starting came, I felt some little stir of excitement. If we were not going to experience the wild joy of living, the leaping from rock up to rock, on the other hand, this was not meant to be a sort of funeral procession. A certain keenness of anticipation is associated merely with tying the rope. We tied it on now partly for convenience, so that no one would be obliged to carry it on its back but no less for its moral effect, a roped party is more closely united. The separate wills of individuals are joined into a stronger common will. Our roping up was the last act of preparation. We had got ourselves ready, lacing up our boots so as to be just tight enough, but not too tight, disposing putties so that they would not slip down, attending to one small thing or another about our clothing for warmth and for comfort's sake possibly even tightening a buckle or doing up a button simply for neatness and not forgetting to arrange the few things we wanted to take with us, some in rucksacks, some near to hand in pockets. Two of us, Norton and I, as Somerville's photograph proves, appeared positively dainty. The word seems hardly applicable to Somerville himself, but at all events we were all ready. We felt ready. And when all these details of a preparation culminated in tying on the rope, we felt something more, derived from the many occasions in the past when readiness in mind and body contained the keen anticipation of strenuous delights. How quickly the physical facts of our case asserted their importance. We had only moved upwards a few steps when Morshed stopped. I think I won't come with you any further, he said. I know I should only keep you back. Considering his conditions on the previous day, I had not supposed Morshed would get very much higher, but this morning he had so made light of his troubles and worn so cheerful a countenance that we heard his statement now with surprise and anxiety.
we understood very well the spirit of the remark if morshed said that there could be no longer a question of his coming on but we wondered whether one of us should not stay behind with him however he declared that he was not seriously unwell and was perfectly capable of looking after himself somerville's judgment as a doctor confirmed him and it was decided he should remain in camp while we three went on without him our first object was to regain the crest of the north ridge not by retracing our steps to the point where we left it yesterday but slanting up to meet it perhaps eight hundred feet above us ascent is possible almost everywhere on these broken slopes a steeper pitch can usually be avoided and the more difficult feats of climbing need not to be performed in fact the whole problem for the mountaineer is quite unlike that presented by the ridge of any great mountain in the alps which if it is not definitely a snow ridge like that from the dome de goutte to the summit of mount blanc which almost invariably present a sharper edge and a more broken crest on the north ridge of everest one has the sensations rather of climbing the face than the ridge of a mountain and it is best thought as a face climb for one is actually on the north face though at the edge of it i can think of no exact parallel in the alps the nearest perhaps would be the easier parts of the hornley ridge of the matterhorn if we were to imagine the stones to be fewer larger and more secure somerville's photographs will convey more to the trained eye of a mountaineer than any words of mine and it will be readily understood that there was no question for us of gymnastic struggles and strong arm pulls wedging ourselves in cracks and hanging on our fingertips we should soon have been turned back by difficulties of that sort we could allow ourselves nothing in the nature of a violent struggle we must avoid any hasty movement it would have exhausted us at once to proceed by rushing up a few steps at a time we wanted to hit off just that mean pace which we could keep up without rapidly losing our strength to proceed evenly with balanced movements saving effort to keep our form as oarsmen say at the end of the race remembering to step neatly and transfer the weight from one leg to the other by swinging the body rhythmically upwards with the occasional help of the hands we were able to keep going for spells of twenty or thirty minutes before halting for three or four or five minutes to gather potential energy for pushing on again our whole power seemed to depend on the lungs the air such as it was was inhaled through the mouth and expired again to some sort of tune in the unconscious mind and the lungs beat time as it were for the feet an effort of will was required not so much to induce any movement of the limbs as to set the lungs to work and keep them working so long as they were working evenly and well the limbs would do their duty automatically it seemed as though actuated by a hidden spring i remember one rather longer halt in spite of all my care i found that one of my feet was painfully cold and fearing frostbite i took off my boot norton rubbed my foot warm i had been wearing four thick socks and now put back on this foot only three as it remained warm for the rest of the night i have no doubt that the boot was previously too tight once again i learned the futility of stopping the circulation by wearing one layer of wool too many
It was our intention naturally in setting out to this day to reach the summit of Mount Everest, provided we were not stopped by a mountaineering difficulty, and that was unlikely. The fate of our expedition would depend on the two factors, time and speed. Of course, we might become too exhausted to go further before reaching our goal. But the consideration of speed really covers that case, for provided one were capable of moving his limbs at all, he would presumably be able to crawl a few steps only so slowly that there would be no point in doing so. From the outset, we were short of time. We should have started two hours earlier. The weather prevented us. The fresh snow was an encumbrance, lying everywhere on the ledges from four inches to eight inches deep. It must have made a difference, though not a large one. In any case, when we measured our rate of progress, it was not satisfactory. At most, four hundred feet an hour, not counting halts, and diminishing a little as we went up. It became clear that if we could go no further, and we couldn't without exhausting ourselves at once, we should still at best be struggling upwards after night had fallen again. We were prepared to leave it to braver men to climb Mount Everest by night. By agreeing to this arithmetical computation, we tacitly accepted defeat. And if we were not to reach the summit, what remained for us to do? None of us, I believe, cared much about any lower objective. We were not greatly interested then in the exact number of feet by which we should beat a record. It must be remembered that the mind is not easily interested under such conditions. The intelligence is gradually numbed as the supply of oxygen diminishes, and the body comes near to exhaustion. Looking back on my own mental processes as we approached twenty-seven thousand feet, I can find no traces of insanity, nothing completely illogical. Within a small compass, I was able to reason, no doubts, very slowly. But my reasoning was concerned only with one idea. Beyond its range, I can recall no thought. The view, for instance, and as a rule, I'm keen enough about the view, did not interest me. I was not taking notice. Wonderful as such an experience would be, I had not even the desire to look over the northeast ridge. I would have gladly got to the northeast shoulder as being the sort of place one ought to reach, but I had no strong desire to get there, and none at all for the wonder of being there. I dare say the others were more mentally alive than I. But when it came to deciding what we should do, we had no lively discussion. It seemed to me that we should get back to Morshed in time to take him down this day to Camp Four. There was some sense in this idea, and many mountaineers may think we were right to make it a first consideration. But the alternative of sleeping a second night at our highest camp and returning next day to Camp Three was never mentioned. It may have been that we shrank unconsciously from another night in such discomfort, whether the thought was avoided in this way or simply was not born. Our minds were not behaving as we would wish them to behave. The idea of reaching Camp Four with Morshed before dark, once it had been accepted, controlled us altogether. It was easy to calculate from our upward speed, supposing that we could treble this on the descent. At what time we ought to turn, we agreed to start down at two thirty p.m., but we would maintain our rate of progress as best we could until that time approached. At two fifteen, we completed the ascent of a steeper pitch and found ourselves on the edge of an easier terrain, where the mountain slopes back toward the northeast shoulder. It was an obvious place for a halt, 
We were in need of food, and we lay against the rocks to spend the remaining fifteen minutes before we should turn for the descent according to our bond. None of us was altogether cooked. We were careful not brought to a standstill, because our limbs would carry us no further. I should be very sorry to reach such a condition at this altitude, for one would not recover easily, and a man who cannot take care of himself on the descent will probably be the cause of disaster to his companions, who will have little enough strength remaining to help themselves and him. It is impossible to say how much further we might have gone. In the light of subsequent events, it would seem that the margin of strength to deal with an emergency was already small enough. I have little doubt that we could have struggled up, perhaps in two hours, more to the northeast shoulder, now little more than four hundred feet above us. Whether we should, then, have been fit to conduct our descent and safety is another matter. End of chapter 6, part 2